so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC Podcast. This is the most dad Saturday, Saturday dad look I've ever seen on you, Brent. For Brent? Yeah. Really? No, he's had his short sleeve button down shirts on before. That's dad, ultimate dad. There's a short sleeve button down? Yeah. Oh, that's awful. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where each week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me on the podcast today are my co-hosts, Lindsay Nicolay. Hello, everyone. And Brent Leatherwood. Howdy, friends. Good to be with you once again. Man, it's great to see you guys. How are you guys doing? We're doing great. Yeah, it, it feels like every other day. Yeah, it's Groundhog Day, essentially. It really is. Uh, well, We've got a lot to talk about this week. So, Lindsay, why don't you go ahead and kick us off and tell us what the ERLC has been talking about this week? Yeah, so this week we have several pieces of content that I think will help help us understand how we can disciple those around us and how uh, we can act Christianly in the midst of this pandemic. So the first we have is by Jessica Burke, and she has an article titled, Four Ways We Try and Help Our Children Understand Suffering. So in the midst of the pandemic, Um, children have been exposed to things on the news, probably about hearing about sick people and job losses and deaths and isolation. They know disappointment in their own lives. And so Jessica talks about how her and her husband try to shepherd their children through suffering. And she says, it's important that we not um, skip over suffering with our children and that we not ignore it, but that we as parents and those who disciple children um, should be the ones to tell them and explain to them what God's word says about this and to be able to speak the hope of the gospel to them. I thought this was a, a really helpful piece and and timely uh, for this week because we had to happened uh, as we were trying to watch the space shuttle launch. Uh, but there was a news uh, promo that came up and said that uh, tonight on the nightly news, We'll be talking about the fact that America has now passed 100,000 deaths uh, related to coronavirus. And so just in that moment, trying to walk our children through why that's such a significant milestone and and what that means for us, uh, I thought this article was, was really helpful for that conversation. Yeah, incredibly helpful. Jessica's a great writer, so I would also encourage listeners to look up some of her other articles on our site as well. So next up, we have an article by Grace Liu, and she talks about what Christians can do to address COVID-19 and the racial divide. So COVID is actually um, exposing, not only do minorities have 
extra risks to their health. And then um, studies have shown and some statistics have shown they have risks economically. It it affects them um, in different ways uh, than those who might be in the majority. But also Asian Americans are experiencing racism and discrimination during this time. And she shares just a little bit about that. It's really heartbreaking, actually. So I'm so thankful that uh, Grace put these thoughts down and shared it with our audience. And that also just kind of brings a question of my mind for for you, Josh. You're the father of a beautiful adopted little girl who is uh, a minority. And do these concerns about coronavirus and its real uh, impact on our our brothers and sisters of of color, does that weigh more heavily on you and, and your wife in this moment at all? You know, I think the first thing that any like adoptive parents who are a part of like an inter- interracial adoption would want uh, people to know is that it's not as though uh, because you have adopted a child of, a, of another uh, ethnicity that that means that, you know, suddenly you have this remarkable understanding uh, of life for, you know, for other communities. But, you know, our, our daughter, Ellie, is uh, almost three years old. She's African-American. And uh, because, you know, she was she it was not an international adoption. It wasn't even uh like she was from another state or region. She's from our, you know, she was born in our hometown where my wife and I grew up. And uh, the the truth is that that even in that community, I'm very aware of the uh, socioeconomic disparities that exist there. And, you know, even though we're in very fortunate uh, to be able to, to ensure that our daughter has, you know, access to whatever kind of medical care she would need, I'm aware that people that are her, you know, biological family members and people uh, in the neighborhood where her family, uh, where, where some of her family lives are even right now at a greater risk. And so, yeah, that kind of stuff definitely weighs on me. And it's something that, that concerns me. And, and I think that just because it puts me in touch with it in a way uh, that is, is more real than, uh, you know, than I probably otherwise would be. Thanks for sharing that, Josh, and just giving us a little bit of insight into even what adoptive families are experiencing right now. Uh, And then the final article that I wanted to share is about shepherding pastors during the coronavirus, because pastors are um, focused on shepherding people in some unprecedented times, but pastors are also human as well, and they struggle, and they need to be shepherded. And so Catherine Boyle, who's the mental health director for Key Ministry, talks about again, the need for shepherding these pastors. And she gives us some examples. She particularly talks to denominational and associational leadership and speaks to the need for people in leadership in those areas to step up in order to lead pastors. But she makes some suggestions like providing free online therapy services for pastors. She suggests something like developing an online pastor's retreat because there have been some virtual women's retreats and other things. And then she talks about developing some weekly three-step guidance. So she's got some great suggestions here. Finally, and this is something that we actually all can do, is uh, she suggests personal contact, that it's just important to be reaching out to our pastors, to be encouraging them, um, to to even be praying for them. And I know I, for one, am guilty of not following through with that. Um, so we just need to be thinking about our pastors and praying for them and actively ministering to them in this time, because again, they are human too, and they're not immune to the mental health effects of this pandemic. 
Yeah, like speaking as someone who has worked in pastoral ministry, I can say that one of the very best things that you as a church member can do for your pastors is just to uh, to let them know that you're praying for them and feel free uh, to ask them how they're doing. You know, one of the things that I try to encourage fellow pastors to, uh, to, to really embrace is just the reality that you're not doing anybody any favors when you pretend like you don't struggle with the very hard things that everyone else does. Um, there's something really freeing about seeing your pastor as a human being and recognizing that, you know, they are walking through and contending with uh, the difficult times and struggles in life, just like everyone else is. And even though these are people that we look to for spiritual leadership, they're flesh and blood human beings that still struggle. And I know that they appreciate your prayers. They appreciate all the support uh, that you're able to give them. And honestly, when they're able to open up and to speak forthrightly about some of the difficult things they're going through, that can, that can make all the difference. So true, Josh. So um, guys, that is what's happened on ERLC.com this week. Hey, thanks, Lindsay. And that brings us to Brent uh, in our culture section for the week. So Brent, tell us what's going on. Well, this has certainly been a strange week, which I guess makes sense because we are in the midst of really strange times. So it all started with Memorial Day weekend and Memorial Day itself just seemed off uh, just from talking to many of our colleagues and friends in the community where we live. uh, Many events marking the occasion were canceled and events that were held were very different uh, from any that we have ever seen. I mean, virtual concerts and and virtual uh, Memorial Day celebrations. It's just an odd thing. One theme that emerged, though, was the gratitude that we all have for frontline workers and healthcare workers and service sector workers that have become the heroes in the midst of coronavirus. And at the same time, though, a shadow was cast over everything Um, as most of us uh, are aware in the U.S., that we were approaching a significant milestone, which we mentioned earlier, 100,000 lives officially lost due to coronavirus. Well, that number was officially reached on Wednesday of this week, and it means that in our country that represents fewer than 5% of the world's population, we now account for nearly one-third of all of the lives lost worldwide to this pandemic. Man, Brent, those numbers are staggering. You know, we all knew that we were approaching this milestone of 100,000 lives lost, but just to see it there in context and to realize uh, that, you know, the United States in terms of our death toll represents one third of the total lives lost. Honestly, it's really difficult to to grapple with. That's right, Josh. And at the same time, we should also note that uh, on Thursday of this week, we surpassed 40 million uh, jobs that have been lost. So there are now over well over 40 million Americans who have filed for unemployment benefits. And the reality is, is that both of those numbers are actually likely higher in reality. So uh, it was just a moment for sure. Uh, The strangeness kind of continued on the international front. So the Chinese government passed a new national security law that may, in effect, allow China to exert unprecedented authority over Hong Kong. In response, our Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said that he certified in a message to Congress on Wednesday that Hong Kong no longer enjoys a high degree of autonomy from China, and that's a decision that could result in the loss of Hong Kong's special trading status with the United States, Uh, and it threatens uh, their standing as an international financial hub. Okay, Brent, so for those of us who have a hard time understanding this, Can you explain, was Hong Kong not its own independent entity in the first place? What is a security law? And how can China just pass one that basically controls Hong Kong? 
Right. So it, it was, it's not really a security law. That's what the Chinese uh, kind of propaganda is calling it, a national security law. In effect, it's actually more of a law that cracks down on free speech rights and the autonomy of Hong Kong. So when uh, the United Kingdom handed over the area of Hong Kong to China back in 1997, uh, as part of that handoff, it created uh, a system that's known as one country, two systems. And uh, what that means is you had a communist system in mainland China and a more democratic system in Hong Kong. But this law that bans uh, sedition, secession from, and subversion of the central government in Beijing, uh, it was introduced through a rarely used constitutional method that has raised the concerns of a lot of international uh, watchers on this front. I mean, this is Truly, this is huge news on the international front, and a lot of folks are critical of it because, frankly, China is taking advantage of the fact that the rest of the world is dealing with the uh, effects of this pandemic. Yeah, I don't want to you know stray too far here, but I do want to say that just as a you know, I'll just call myself a freedom-loving American. I'm always uh, fearful of the encroachment of communism, and to see China's government try to show its teeth here and exercise this opportunity to really exercise this a level of control over the people of Hong Kong is, is deeply concerning and it should be uh, to people all across the world. Absolutely. And so, I mean, practically for us, we should be in prayer this upcoming week for the president of the United States, our secretary of state, because uh, there are some big uh, decisions that have to be made about America's posture towards Hong Kong in light of this change. The news of the week continued with a somber note and one that frankly is frustrating for a number of uh, citizens of the country. So let me offer this quick warning to, to listeners as we unfortunately had to do a few weeks ago along these same lines. What we're about to talk about for just the next couple minutes is uh, going to be potentially very graphic to younger ears. And so if you are listening with children, you may want to speed ahead uh, by just a couple minutes or ask them to leave the room. So uh, the death of George Floyd, who is a 46-year-old man in Minneapolis, Minnesota, occurred this week. Police were called to a local store because a clerk in the store believed that Floyd was using a counterfeit bill. Video showed an arrest as it was being made, and it revealed little issues. But moments later, cell phone video picks up from where the other uh, video left off, and it showed Floyd lying on the ground on the street with a police officer's knee to his neck for approximately eight minutes. Floyd was seen yelling that he could not breathe, and he died shortly thereafter from the episode. The event led to the immediate termination of employment for the officers that were involved, and on Wednesday... The local mayor asked for criminal charges to be brought against the officer in the video. Protests have been sparked throughout the country because of this. Yeah, in response to the you know to the video and the news beginning to circulate online, uh, Dr. Moore, uh, the president of the RLC, he took time to write uh, an article. Uh, just addressing this. And honestly, it's difficult even to talk about this issue because it feels like we were just here. Uh, later in the show today, we're going to have uh, my friend, uh, Lemanuel Williams on. Uh, Manny is an African-American pastor uh, in Tennessee, and he is uh, going to share some thoughts with us. But I would encourage listeners to, you know, to look at Dr. Moore's article. He does a really good job of trying to help us think through how to navigate this, uh, or how to think through this, how to pray for this, and, and to 
you know, think about what should happen going forward. But this is, it's just devastating. It is devastating and tragic and horrible. And I cannot imagine living my life in that kind of fear. It's just, it's unfathomable. And Baptist Press, bpnews.net, has an article out talking about how SBC leaders are urging prayer and reaching out with the gospel and speaking out against racism in the midst of George Floyd's death and just this continual onslaught in the African-American community. And I mean, I can only think that how how frustrating this must be for uh, Americans who are people of color and as Christians are, are uh, black and brown brothers of, and sisters who, you know, in this moment where we are supposed to be unified and trying to combat uh, this virus to just actually see it in many ways pulling us apart and these pre-existing divides that have been with us as a, as a country for a while, those divides only being exacerbated uh, in this moment it is just so frustrating that it seems like for whatever reason, uh, we we can't as a nation uh, make progress on this front. Yeah. And there are things that just seem so intuitive. Like, why why would you put your knee on somebody's neck for eight, nine minutes? Why? And when they're screaming that they can't breathe. So it's just tragic tragic for his family, for our nation. And I don't know if y'all seen video or pictures of the protests in Minneapolis and just how heartbreaking that is. Cars burned, areas destroyed, and it's just, it's really like a visible picture of the scars and the destruction, even in the midst of our country. And and we should also say, look, this is not meant to, to be critical uh, in general of our law enforcement officers. They have a tough time, and, and there are many instances that they are put in uh, where things get very tense and they have to make very uh, quick decisions and in, in some cases life-saving uh, decisions. But none of that justifies what we are seeing in this video. If you have apprehended someone, that means they are under your authority, under your care. And if you have them down and arrested, there is no reason, there is no plausible reason for you to continue having your knee on their throat. Uh, it, it, it just boggles the mind that these sorts of incidences keep happening. Uh, so I, I can totally understand the frustration that is felt uh, by our fellow Americans in instances like this. Uh, they are justified in um, wanting justice to be done here. Beyond that, this week, uh, we saw the postponement of America's first launch of astronauts into space for the first time in, in many years. Uh, the joint SpaceX-NASA venture had to be scrubbed from the launch pad in Cape Canaveral, Florida, as storms were in the area. A lot of enthusiasm had built up for the event, as even President Trump was in attendance and prepared to give remarks uh, for the occasion. Uh, but... Uh, not all hope is lost. NASA officials are hopeful that the next window for a launch, which will occur Saturday afternoon, 
will see a successful mission take place. And so, Josh, uh, I know your longstanding man crush on Elon Musk uh, ensured that you took the news of the scrubbed launch particularly hard. But uh, knowing that Saturday awaits is probably some good news. Guys, I don't know about y'all, but I don't know if anybody could pay me a sufficient amount of money to send me to space. I would not go. Even in a Tesla-designed space shuttle craft? Especially not in a Tesla-designed space shuttle. And uh, yeah, I'll just enjoy it in the new heavens and the new earth. I am not about to go explore space now. Haven't you seen gravity? That's my worst fear, getting lost in space. She makes it back. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Um, All right. So there were some other newsy items that took place this week as well. Let's get to those. Baptist Press reported on some helpful guidance for churches provided by the CDC. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued interim guidelines that occurred actually last Friday after we uh, taped this podcast that reminded state and local officials to take the First Amendment right of religious liberty into account when they institute reopening policies. And so I thought this was really helpful. And Dr. Moore said as much uh, on behalf of the RLC with a press release that we put out about this guidance. That's right, Brent. The uh, the CDC guidelines were actually really, really helpful because they were, you know, they didn't come down uh, from on high as some kind of dictatorial commands. They were instead uh, the, you know, just helpful guidance for churches as they are thinking about reopening and for local governments uh, to pay attention to and state governments as they are trying to issue guidelines uh, to churches as we try to, you know, resume normal life and the normal normal rhythms of worship. On the economic front, we we already talked about uh, the number of Americans that have now filed for unemployment in total. But did you know that there's actually some surprising good news? Axios reports this week that Americans are behaving very differently than they have in previous recessions, causing home sales to rise. And many may continue to spend money as if nothing has changed. So that was actually really surprising. And it comes to us from the Commerce Department. Uh, who has a new home sales report, and it showed that home sales increased in April despite nationwide lockdowns. I thought this was really surprising and hopeful. On the political front, most of us are aware that the national political conventions are due to be held later this summer. Well, two related items happened on that front this week. On the Republican side, President Trump threatened to relocate the GOP convention from Josh's home state of North Carolina if current Democratic Governor Roy Cooper doesn't give the green light for the convention. So where North Carolina is right now in its phased reopening, essentially uh, large gatherings like a convention uh, are not permitted. But we should note that the event is expected to draw thousands of people from across the country and millions of dollars in revenue to the Tar Heel State. Uh, So potentially all that would be lost out on if the Republican National Convention does not take place. On the Democratic side, former Vice President Joe Biden is giving a virtual keynote address to the Texas Democratic Party's state convention, which is being held completely online. Why is that significant? Because given the size of the event, it is seen as a potential test run for the possibility of moving the Democratic National Convention to a virtual format as well. On the religious liberty front, we saw two developments this week in California and Maryland. In California, in a two-to-one decision from a federal court, 
It upheld the state's ban on church services, in-person church services, saying it doesn't violate the First Amendment. Uh, Under current California Governor Gavin Newsom's plan, churches would be allowed to reopen in stage three of the plan, as the ruling noted, saying that churches are a higher-risk workplace. And on the other side of the country, in Maryland, a county has issued an executive order that outlines public health rules under which churches may reopen, but the order prohibits the distribution and consumption of any food or drink as part of any religious service, which effectively outlaws the distribution of communion. That's right, Brent. And honestly, this is mystifying to me. It is just an example of the kind of of, of ham-fisted government. You know, at the RLC, through this whole process, we have been trying to encourage uh, churches to comply as far as possible with whatever guidance or or restrictions are necessary as we are all together trying to combat uh, the spread of coronavirus. But this is just one of those things where where narrowly tailored guidance that actually takes into account religious exercise and religious practice would have been so much more effective than what we see here. And so it's my hope that other counties and other local and uh, state and, and municipal governments will take the lesson here and, and be much more thoughtful and careful going forward. This goes back to some comments that uh, Russell Moore made last week. Local governments, state governments, the federal government should treat churches the same where there is sameness and, and offer guidance. Uh, but those sorts of offers of wise counsel can quickly, if they are not positioned correctly, turn into directives that violate uh, religious liberty. And that's I mean, just case in point. We talked about the CDC guidance, and now we're talking about this. The CDC guidance takes the right approach. This seems to go uh, just just too far, and uh, I doubt that a, a court will uh, allow this to, to stand. So finally, from the world of sport, both the NHL and NBA advance plans this week to return, with the NBA looking at the possibility of playing games at Disney's wide world of sports, and the NHL looking for two host cities where a 24-team playoff season uh, will be played. So this is welcome news for sports fans, and we know that they're ready. Why? Because Turner Sports said that last Sunday's telecast of The Match, Champions for Charity, attracted an average of 5.8 million viewers across four of its networks and said it was the most watched golf telecast in cable TV history. And it featured Tiger Woods and hometown hero in Tennessee, Peyton Manning. They beat Phil Mickelson and everybody's uh, favorite NFL player to hate, Tom Brady, uh, because he's, he's overrated. And that's for you, Dean and Sarah. Uh, and it's a match that featured a lot of entertainment, a lot of entertaining shots, and they actually ended up raising uh, over $20 million for coronavirus relief funds. And did you know that Tom Brady split his pants on TV while playing in that tournament? Well, I missed out on both of those things. I did see later Tom Brady trying to like tweet his way out of the embarrassment of having split his pants on national television, which is, you know, that's something. I mean, how do you recover from that? You wear looser pants is what you do. We will have to ask uh, fan favorite Dean and Sarah how that's possible. All right. So, Lindsay and Josh, that's your look at This Week in Culture. This episode of the ERLC podcast was sponsored by The Good Book Company 
publishers of a new book called Abortion, the latest in the Talking Points series. In this short book, Dr. Lizzie Ling and Vaughn Roberts survey the Christian worldview and help us to think biblically, speak wisely, and act compassionately as we engage with the people, the questions, and the heartache surrounding abortion in a society with very different values. Dr. Lizzie Ling was a doctor for many years and worked in Africa supporting local churches as they cared for those affected by HIV AIDS. Vaughn Roberts is a pastor and author of many books. For more information about this book, go to thegoodbook.com. That's thegoodbook.com. So now we're about to talk to uh, one of my very best friends, uh, Lemanuel Williams. Lemanuel is on staff at Redemption City Church in Franklin, Tennessee. He oversees uh, a number of areas at the church, including men's discipleship and a really cool initiative. I'm excited for him to tell us more about uh, in just a few minutes. But uh, just want to say, Manny, thanks so much for joining us today. If you could, uh, as we get started, would you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you're serving in ministry right now. And while you're at it, go ahead and tell us like one thing that God is teaching you in this season of life and ministry. Yeah. So um, first of all, I want to say I'm so glad to be on this podcast, especially one of my best friends here, Josh Wester. It's just an awesome uh, honor to be here and be able to speak with you all. And then listening to the podcast, it's just been, it's been great. You guys, your humor and chemistry together. Um, and, and on top of that, the content is just is superb. So um, I'm glad to be here and honored to be able to to contribute here and, and speak to you with you guys today. So I'm a newly married man. Um, so I just celebrated my first anniversary with my darling Sarah. Um, it wouldn't be right if I don't talk about her at the beginning of this as I'm talking about myself. Um, she's such a gift to me. I probably can dote on her for, for the whole interview. So um, let me tell you about myself. Um, I did grow up um, in Virginia Beach, and most of my youth was actually uh, entrenched uh, in the church, but I was actually entrenched in, 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 in a Pentecostal church. And so I wish I could say that that phrase that I heard, I'm Baptist born, Baptist bred, and when I die, I'll be Baptist dead. Um, but uh, that's not the reality. I was born again in a Pentecostal church, and now um, I, I am Baptist bred now, so I can call myself a Baptocostal. That's what I like to go that's, by. There you go. Uh, <laughs> well, and we're glad you're not Baptist dead yet. Because yeah, we yeah, value yeah. your your life and ministry. <laughs> yep, my voice is evidence of that. So yeah, uh, it's only it was only uh, six years ago that I transitioned over to uh, the Southern Baptist denomination. I moved from Virginia Beach to Rocky Mount uh, to become a pastoral intern at a local church plant. That's where I met Josh Wester um, and attended Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and uh, worked for a nonprofit there in the inner city for about uh, four years. Um, and serving in, in a specific community there and working to bring about educational revitalization and economic vitality and, and investing in inner city youth. And, and I mean, obviously, there's a lot more that, that was there. But in the midst of that, I was given the opportunity um, to come and pastor at Redemption City Church in Franklin um, and Franklin, Tennessee. So uh, I'm the director of discipleship there. Uh, and I've been at Redemption City for almost two years now. Um, September will be when the two year mark comes up. And uh, never would have imagined in my earlier years of pastoring that I'd be pastoring in the midst of a pandemic. And so to answer that that second question, basically, that Josh is asking me, um, what has the Lord been teaching me? I think he's been teaching me just to focus on the provision for today. Um, there's a lot of things that um, that I want to take control of and, and try to plan and prepare for tomorrow, which that's not bad in and of itself. 
But I think that the overwhelming marker of my personal story, which I don't have enough time to go through, is I didn't plan to be in any of the places from Rocky Mount to here at all. And so I've just been reminded over and over again of that text in Proverbs, many plans are in the heart of man, but it's the it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. And I think it's just teaching me to have peace uh, with, with my tomorrow being inside of his hands and not in my own hands. Um, teach me how to seek the kingdom of God, the rule of God on earth right now and all of its righteousness and not be anxious for anything. And that's, that's, that's tough um, to live in that freedom of life abundantly. And so, yeah, I think the text, not to be anxious about tomorrow, uh, for tomorrow's anxious for itself and sufficient today's own trouble. And so I think that scripture and reality has become more vivid to me in this season. Um, so a couple things we are excited about at Redemption City that we want to talk to you about are the men's discipleship and then this neat initiative called Hope for the Hungry. And can you tell us a little bit about what those are and how you've seen God use these ministries? Yeah. So uh, let me start out with the men's ministry. It's a ministry that's growing. Um, we do a lot of things in that ministry, but uh, there's two that I want to just highlight. One is uh, uh, we, we started doing a men's night thing whenever I first got here. We do it on a quarterly basis. It's where we have special speakers come. They speak to us in the evening on a very specific biblical topic geared towards men. We have a blast, though. We, we throw uh, competitive games uh, to, to get the guys' competitive juice going and uh, get them all involved and pumped up, eat some good barbecue, and then listen to a good sermon. Um, and so those have been really awesome, connecting our guys together um, and then kind of leading into other things like our, our men's Bible studies. Uh, I think one of the most powerful ways I've seen God use this ministry um, is actually in our men's Bible studies. That, that's not a novel thing, but I, I run one actually on, on Wednesday mornings at 6 a.m. Um, and it's, it's amazing to see how hungry and thirsty these guys are, and most of them not even early risers, but they're up at 6 a.m., and they're consistent to the study, and they're just hungry to, to feed from the Word of God. And so investing in good studies for them and to see them grow month after month in the knowledge and understanding of the Word and their biblical literacy, uh, to receive text messages and say, man, thank you so much uh, for, for helping me see the Bible and, and the faith in a new light, you know, in a more holistic way. Um, and, and then to even have wives uh, tell me to continue to study because it's impacting their, their husband's lives and how they're fathering and how they're, how they're also being uh, husbands as well. And so just from opening up the scriptures on a week-to-week basis at 6 a.m. in the morning and then other studies that are going on, God's really doing powerful things through our men's studies. I guess I can just switch over and start talking about our Hope for the Hungry uh, initiative as well. This is a very unique thing for our church. Our church was gifted with over 30 acres of land. There's a whole nother story behind that. Um, but 30 acres of land, that's actually going to be the future home of our church. And uh, in the meantime, we decided to use a portion of that land to actually uh, farm and to, to, to raise produce to feed the hungry inside of Tennessee. And so we have a two-acre garden. And I don't know what uh, people's understanding of that, but that, that is really big. A two-acre garden um, that we're working on. Uh, in the first year, and, and this is our first phase that we started out on this year um, to feed the hungry inside of Tennessee. Uh, it's beautiful, but not only is it beautiful, it is already starting to produce a lot of uh, a lot of produce to feed the hungry with. And so we're partnering with a local nonprofit organization called Cultivate, and they are just doing an amazing work. Uh, their mission is to grow food and grow people, and uh, they even take guys that are uh, they're, they're ex-cons, drug addicts, and I mean, the list goes on, 
and and they they build these guys up to become professional farmers and they call them cultivators and as they're cultivating the the idea is as they're cultivating the new life and crops they're nurturing and, and cultivating a new life for themselves so um, they also partner with local partners to to help them get full full-time job placement once they're done with the program which goes around six months so if that's the model they are actually our professional farmer for what we're doing and that's the model that we're following um, and getting started off with so we actually started back out in December uh, announcing the initiative, and our church has responded financially. They've gone above and beyond what we asked for, and they're still giving to the cause. Uh, we got a ton of farm work to do, um, and they volunteered for that thousands of hours over the summer, and they stepped up to that need. So our people are becoming farmers, and we're already beginning to feed the hungry, uh, and we're just getting started. So uh, partnering with several nonprofits, Grace Works, Daughters of the King, One Gen Away, um, that's that's working on feeding millions of people uh, every year. So God has just been gracious to us through, the, through that initiative and it's starting now. Manny, thanks for that rundown, man. And that's something that Lindsay and I have, uh, as you know, church members at Redemption City have been able to see up close. And it is really incredible. Uh, like you said, that even that Hub for the Hungry initiative is one of those things that none of us could have seen coming even a couple years ago. Uh, but it's taking the opportunity to take advantage of, of what God has provided for us. So we're going to pivot a little bit to something celebratory that you've talked about, and that is your first year of marriage to the lovely Sarah. And looking back on your first year, tell us something about marriage or a few things that have surprised you. Yeah, well, um, we we actually, I think the thing that surprised me the most is we actually didn't have too hard of a time uh, adjusting to living together. Um <laughs> You hear mm-hmm. the horror story People sometimes. People warn you about uh, the first year. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there were there were no like weird quirks uh, that that we needed to compromise or adjust to really. Um, and, and you think like getting married a little later, if if it is later, you know, like being thirty one years old when I got married, um, you think you could get stuck in your own ways, which I was. But there's not there's not been a whole lot of. It's been surprisingly not as stubborn as I thought it would be in this in this first year. I, I mean, I think there. The one weird quirk that actually ended up happening was after we got married, and that was I stopped putting the top on my toupees. Very strange, um, but <laughs> it really annoyed if my if wife. If that's the quirk, then you're you're doing good. <laughs> yeah, so trying to <laughs> trying to put the top back on the toupees now. So that's something. But I think also what um, one of the surprising benefits was was actually well one of the surprising things was the surprising benefits of really really good premarital counseling so i I didn't i don't think i put a premium on it before i got married but i'd pay a very high amount for it because i i think it probably saved us from a lot of you know heartache and unnecessary conflicts but it's still a a really young marriage so we we still have a long way to go Uh, so we'll we'll see (laughs) Uh, This is our kind of lightning round question. One of the fun things uh, that we like to talk about is reading. You're a, since I get to ask this question, I'll just say it. You're a huge nerd, you know, on top of everything else that you are. You're a person who loves to live in the life of the mind. You love to read uh, and study and think. So for fun, if you could only take three, or for the rest of your life, you could only read books by three different authors, who would you choose? So whose works would you choose? Man, that's that's really hard for me. Uh, I think if it's for the rest of this life, then I, I'll, I'll pick authors that are more uh, useful for me. Um, so the first one would actually be... And we'll, we'll just say that the Bible, we'll say the Bible like is, is grafted in. Okay, it's all right. Uh, Isaiah in the Bible would be one of my favorite authors in there, by the way. But anyways, uh, I go, <laughs> okay. yeah, I go with, 
Cicero, uh, because uh, I'm actually reading on the ideal order right now by him. I think he is, uh, man, it's just fun to read him and the dialogue he has and conversation inside of that book. He, he writes a little bit more like the next author I would say I would want to have is actually Plato, because I just feel like there's a there's a basis philosophically and politically there that I really enjoy with reading Plato, and that will keep me going for the rest of my life. And then, of course, I cannot leave out the one and only C.S. Lewis. I feel like everybody gives that answer that he's in there somewhere, but that's just how influential he is. And so I love reading him a, a ton, so I could do that for the rest of my life. Man, well, th- that's a good list. That's a, you know, I, I like to tell people that one of the people I've benefited the most from is Augustine. And the thing that actually changed Augustine's life was reading Cicero. So you're in good company there. There's a famous story about Augustine reading uh, Cicero's Hortentius and, and having his whole life changed. Now, I want to kind of transition us into this next question. One of the reasons we wanted to talk to you today is because this week we witnessed another violent incident where a, a black man lost his life. The video was shocking and horrible. And, you know, we've, we've mentioned it already on the podcast today. We just feel grieved uh, by this. And one of the things that grieves us the most is that this feels so familiar. You know, not only is this a tragedy, but it's a tragedy that we're almost growing numb to because it's something we've seen over and over again. Uh, you and I are real life friends that have spent a lot of time together. And brother, like one of the things that I have, like on issues of related to race, I have learned so much from you. And so as a black man, as a pastor, as a Christian, could you just talk to us for a second and share some of your thoughts about this and maybe the larger issue and just say, you know, a word about how people should think about it or how they might respond? Yeah. Um, first I want to just say, uh, I'd send the condolences over to the, the Floyd family and all those that are in grief over his death. I I was really broken last night. Just uh, I basically cried myself to sleep last night thinking thinking through this and watching that video. And I man, I really hope that I get to see George in the resurrection and celebrate with him to be in a time underneath the just rulership of our righteous King Jesus and to be in a land where partiality will be no more. And uh, to to have a time where our, the color of our skin is no longer just something that, that we speak and reflect on and, and, and have for, we look at it and, and, and when it's looked at, it's it just looked at as a need for management of behavior. There's so much to unpack there, but I, I, I'm looking forward to the time where the color of our skin will speak and reflect the majesty of our Creator in all of its fullness. But until then, I, I think that it, it'll be really good for people to begin to set their mind that it is time for war. It's time to go to war. And I want to say this, I needed a wake-up call. Uh, it's sad that it took the death of another black man to wake me up. Um, And as hard as it is for me to admit that I've been asleep, especially to the racial issues and injustices that are there, almost the past two years, I've almost been asleep. Not that I wasn't aware of the things, but I am a black man in a local church pastor, and the church that I'm in is at Franklin, Tennessee. I'm just going to put my cards on the table here. Franklin is an incredible city. It's beautiful. It's wealthy. And though there are pockets of poverty, and yes, there's injustice here, I got to admit, it's hard to see. And when it's hard to see, it's hard to believe. And so I'm in, I'm in a church with, with you guys, and uh, I love my church. 
We are a majority white church. I'm one of the few black members that are there. So once again, just want to put this on the table as I'm talking to you guys. But what I've learned is that in an environment such as Franklin, it can really dampen the zeal of your dispositions and convictions over time. Not because the environment's evil. That's not what I'm getting at. But because it, 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 it lacks that visual of the relation of racial issues inside of our nation and the injustice that's there. Before I moved to Franklin, I was working in the inner city, like I said, and uh, that's a totally different context. And in that context, the racial issues and the injustice in our nation was, was at the forefront of my mind day by day because it was visible. It wasn't just an idea. Uh, it wasn't just a bunch of scatter videos showing injustice, but on a day-to-day basis, I was witnessing the injustice in African-American lives. I was seeing what they were going through on a day-to-day basis. I was understanding their plight. So since I've moved, not blaming this on the move, but but since I've moved, the, the conditioning of my, of my mind has definitely changed. And I remember Brian Stevenson saying this about three years ago. I was in some training and he, Brian Stevenson, uh, the lawyer in the movie Just Mercy, he, he got up and he said, proximity is key to changing the world. And that's always stuck to me. So coming here, it, it definitely has, and Franklin's conditioned my mind to change. I haven't been as sensitive to those things, and but the muscle memory is still there. And so after seeing Ahmad's death and George's death, it's kind of like awakened me. It's jolted me back to life. And and I want to say at the beginning, I want to apologize to brothers and sisters that have been in the fray. The ERLC has been on the front lines in this. But for those who are like myself that need a wake-up call, it's time to wake up. It's time to go to war. Uh, whether black or white, it's time to go to war. And and I think it's an, a, important to remember that when we're doing this, we're not fighting against flesh and blood. This is not merely an intellectual battle. I, I love intellect. It's not merely a political battle. Ideas are important. Politics and policies are important. But I, I want to be blatantly honest. Racism and white supremacy, they're very boring and stupid ideologies and practices. And I, I can say that at the base level of every sinful ideology is they're boring and stupid at their at their core. I mean, you think of it epistemologically, existentially, in every way, racism and white supremacy is stupid, theoretically or practically, economically, socially, intellectually, whatever it is. You look back at at, uh, uh, at guys and their ideas like Herbert Spencer and, and social Darwinism and all that, their arguments are, are quite easy to rebut and discredit. So to a certain extent, the reason why I'm saying this is because the ideas of white supremacy and racism, they can easily be overcome. But the spirit behind the ideas cannot be easily overcome. They are demonic ideas. They are demon-possessed ideas, if you will. And I am, I'm reminded of when the disciples try to cast out the demon from the demon-possessed boy in Mark chapter 9, but they can't. And, and Jesus comes in, and he rebukes the demon, he casts him out, then he rebukes his disciples. And he says this, that this kind of demon can only be cast out in this kind of way. And, and I, I've been reading Pro Reggae, li- Living Under the, the, the Christ Kingship by Abraham Kuyper. And in his chapters, The Power Given to Us and, and Increase in Our Power, he breaks down this text in Mark 9 to explain that it is clear that the disciples were given enough power to cast out demons earlier. But there are levels to this thing. And he says this kind 
can only be driven out by prayer and fasting. And I think that this kind of demon in our society, if racism and white supremacy are demon-possessed ideas and practices, if they're so subliminately thread into the fabric of our society and, and persons, and they've been spreading over the centuries, I think this kind of demonic possession of ideas and practices can only be cast out by another level of spiritual warfare. And so I want to indict myself first and just say that I don't know the last time that I fasted about racial issues in our country. I mean, for heaven's sakes, it's, a, it's the original sin of our nation. It's rooted in our history. So I'm asking, why wouldn't I, as a black man, have a consistent rhythm and a practice of prayer and fasting? And so this prayer and fasting that I'm talking about, I, I want to make it very clear that I'm not just talking about doing something that is that is stuck in the invisible, but I'm talking about something that results in a visible demonstration of power. It is followed by actions of casting out, if you will, uh, that, that, that everybody can see, whatever that looks like. And I'm talking about prayer basically in a fasting that will lead us to a spiritual depth that leads to empowerment and wisdom that comes from above. And so that we can combat and we can bind this strong man of white supremacy and racism in our society, especially in our churches. I think we have limitations on how far it can go in society, but judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And I want my life to be caught up after seeing this uh, with, with George. I want my life to be caught up with the zeal of Phineas, if you will, to be violently slaughtering this sin that defies our Christian community so we can have peace and unity inside of the church. And so I would say one in response, it's time to go to war. It's time to gear up. It's time to take this thing to another level. That's my first thought in this. Well, Manny, we're so thankful for those sobering words calling us to war on our knees and war in the spiritual realm because you're so right. It's not going to easily be overcome because it's got to be something that's overcome by the power of God in the hearts of sinners. So thank you for sharing with us and may the Lord use this to to bring about a revival of sorts where we repent and then see a very different church and a very different America in the future. And our hope is that, I mean, the hope we have is that we know God is all powerful. He can do all things. Um, and we have the invitation to ask him. So thank you for that challenge. It's convicting. So now it's time for the lunchroom, where every week we tell you the things we've been talking about with one another. So Lindsay, you're up first this week. What's on your mind? Okay, guys. So I was trying to think about what I was going to talk about. And I had mentioned the show Chosen on a previous episode, but I hadn't watched it yet. And I was asking for feedback. Well, I'm not the biggest fan of uh, these Christian movies and shows. But again, this was really well done. Of course, they use creative license to take a look at Jesus when his ministry was starting and when he was calling the disciples. And they take a look at some of the backstories and just kind of imagine what those are. But it got it right at the points where it was important. But one of the things that it reminded me of and that stuck out to me is that oftentimes when I read the Gospels, even though I know better, I kind of imagine it as a utopia and like Jesus walking around with this big aura of light around him. And I imagine the disciples being more polished than they are. And so this brought back the reality of how 
really earthy Jesus's ministry was and how he came into the most unexpected and uncomfortable places and how it really is a gift of God to have the eyes to see Christ for who he is um, because he would not be recognizable to us in our flesh based on our own understanding. So anyway, I would highly recommend that. There are eight episodes. That's really good, Lindsay. Uh, For my lunchroom stuff this week. It is nothing serious. It's just things to bring you joy. So I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, there is this phenomenon going around on the internet called the bottle opening trick uh, that people are doing. And literally it's just, you know, they, you tap on the side of the bottle and, but there's all of these like montage videos that are, that are floating around or people doing it literally the same thing every time they tap on the bottle and they do it with like a, like a butter knife. You tap on the bottle and then you hit the top and the top, you know, flies off of the bottle. I've seen people crack the bottle as they're trying to do it. Uh, but it's just fun. And every time the person's reaction is like utter shock, even though it's doing exactly what the person in the video they watched to learn how to do it is doing. Uh, so that's one. The other one though was like really, really cool. Uh, I'm, I'm just calling it prom kid. Cause I don't know what it is, but basically this, uh, this, uh, teenage girl who was graduated from high school and wasn't going to be able to attend, uh, her prom had apparently watched this other like younger boy, uh, for a long time. And he was sad about the fact she wasn't going to be able to attend her prom. So he decided to throw her a prom himself and dressed up and did the whole deal. They did a social distance prom between this you know, young boy and this girl because she was going to miss out on her junior or senior prom. And so there are pictures there. It's, it'll be linked in the show notes, but it was a very, very cute thing uh, that is just one way to make a memory during social distancing. All right, Brent, what's on your mind? All right, so I wanted to talk about something that's actually a little more uh, serious. Uh, so this week, the lead singer of the Christian group, Hawk Nelson, came out with an Instagram post saying that he no longer believes in God. And uh, just for kind of transparency purposes, I I should probably mention my my wife used to represent uh, Hawk Nelson at her record label here in in Nashville. But uh, it was just a really sad moment, and certainly in the uh, Christian music sphere, uh, and probably for many fans of the group, Uh, seeing someone who has featured so prominently in the group success saying, yeah, I I really don't believe that God exists anymore. That just, man, that probably raises uh, a lot of uh, points of conversation around homes in the country. And uh, it is definitely something that has stuck with me uh, this week. Well, and because you might not mention it, Josh actually had a piece up on our site about this and just responding to it and about how Christians can be encouraged when they see others in the faith, particularly those who are in prominent positions or or more notable positions, um, when they see them turn from Christ, Josh reminds us to not miss Jesus, that he's there all along, even when others turn from him. And the, the members of the band released their own statement saying that they still love their fellow bandmate and that uh, even when people expressed doubt about God, he's still very real and still loves them. Yeah, I thought that was a really great move uh, by the other members of the band. But over the last several years, we've seen a lot of prominent uh, Christians make these kinds of announcements about walking away from the faith. And I know how discouraging that can be uh, to people who have been influenced by these people or who have, they've, they've been, you know, been instrumental in, in encouraging their faith or some of these, you know, uh, I'm sure some of these songs have just meant so much to uh, other Christians that to receive news like this can be really, really devastating. So I, I wrote some thoughts there uh, that are up on ERLC.com. And I hope that, you know, I hope that they're encouraging 
thing. And I hope that Christians will just take heart to know exactly what, what those other band members tried to reinforce, which is that Jesus doesn't move. He doesn't change. He's still always there, no matter what uh, we're going through or struggling with. Uh, and so, you know, even as we kind of lament uh, th- this announcement about someone walking away from the faith, we should we should pray uh, that through the, whole, you know, the work of the Holy Spirit that, that God brings him back, that well, he would revive this faith. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Uh, just as a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, uh, we would really appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your podcast app and leaving us a rating or review. But for Brent and Lindsay and myself, we're going to sign off here and say we look forward to being back next week with more content.